Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, good morning and welcome to the second episode of In Your Embrace podcast for the year 2020. The new and improved, no longer called Morning Walk podcast. Although I am recording this in the morning on Friday, January 17th, it is a beautiful morning here in Menlo Park. And, uh, and I was walking just a few minutes ago walk around our campus, although now I must admit I'm in my car, I am driving, I'm driving on my way to San Jose uh, for a noon low mass over there. So uh, this Friday um, our rector has declared it a free weekend, we have a free weekend, Um, and so we were excused from the normal seminary routine of prayers and mass in the morning, there's no classes today. So we kind of have the day free to use as we will, to use at our discretion. And, uh, and, and then, in fact, the rest of the weekend, uh, as I'll talk about in a minute, I still have various obligations this weekend, and most of us have at least something going on. But uh, technically, it is a free weekend, and our time is our own, which is very nice. So today, I uh, woke up early, woke up at 5, according to my, my one resolution for the year. And I uh, prayed my office very early. I had a lovely cup of coffee. And then I went out for a run, my first run of the year. My first run actually in a very long time, in months. I have not been exercising for quite a while. And uh, so I'm trying to get back into it. So this morning went for a lovely jog around the neighborhood. And then um, came back, had my time of mental prayer, a little holy hour in our chapel, went for a lovely, then, as I said, a little stroll around the campus, and now I'm heading over to this church in San Jose for Mass, the noon Mass. So all in all, it's been a good day so far. I have a good amount of homework to do this afternoon coming up, but uh, for a little while longer, I'm free. (laughs) And so I'm making use of this commute time to begin recording my podcast. I've been sitting here for the longest time at the exit to the seminary trying to turn left on Middlefield Road. And now finally, praise God, hallelujah, I've been able to turn left. Okay, so here we go. I'm on my way. So yeah, as I mentioned, the first week of classes has now ended. Um, Our first week back at St. Pat's for the spring semester. It's been a bit crazy, uh, especially for my class, Theology 2, with scheduling conflicts. We haven't had too many of those uh, last year or last semester, not really any scheduled conflicts, but for whatever reason, this semester, we just had a lot of trouble with our classes. And uh, so first day of class on Monday, we learned at the very last minute that a class which was scheduled for 2 p.m., and it was supposed to be one hour long, was moved back to 1 p.m. and it was two hours long. So it ended at the same time, but it began an hour earlier. And we found out right before class, we had to hustle over there. And um, so our Mondays are totally full. We've just got class, class, class from 9.30 until now 3 p.m. So that's a real long day. Then we found out on Thursday, another class, which was supposed to be from 1.15 to 2.30, I believe, got pushed back to basically the next period. And so it would start at 2.45 and go till four. And uh, again, we found out about that right before class. So we had to hustle over there. 
well, actually, we found out about it right before the class was supposed to be held, so we weren't hustling anywhere. Instead, we had this long gap of time before the class actually began, which was all right. But then the rescheduling of that class, then that disrupted another class, quasi-class, that we've been trying to find a time to meet. Um, one of my scripture professors is offering a little uh, Hebrew study group where we're going to be reading through the book of Ruth, I believe, in Hebrew. And so we were trying to find a time to meet for that, and we had just decided that our time to meet was going to be at 3 p.m. on Thursdays, when all of a sudden my class gets rescheduled to uh, take up that time. So we had to start again at ground zero, and, you know, all the hassles that come with rescheduling, coordinating schedules, has been kind of a theme of my week. But, you know, by the grace of God, I, other than on Monday, which I'll talk about it here in a sec, I have not lost my peace. And uh, I think it's important to distinguish sometimes between exterior and interior peace. Um, they are different. They're related, but they are different. Exterior peace, we cannot control on our own. We can contribute to it but it's a confluence of a variety of factors, most of which we don't have control over, you know, as we know from our normal daily experience. Um, so a part of peace, we could say, is simply not being at war. You know, when exterior circumstances are good, things are going along easily, there's not resistance that I'm being met with, and there's exterior peace. But I can't control whether the exterior peace exists or not. I, I know I had no control over these scheduling conflicts this week which were causing some stress for myself and my classmates. They were simply forced upon us by the registrar's office. <laughs> they were an evil which could not be avoided. Interior peace, however, does lie within our control. And we can say peace, I, I believe this comes from St. Thomas Aquinas, although I hesitate to misattribute it, it might not. But well, let's just say St. Thomas says this, that peace is the daughter of order. Peace comes about when things are rightly ordered. And in particular, if we look at the state of our own souls, our own interior lives, what are our various powers and our discrete actions, what are they ordered toward? See, if the different areas of our, our lives, especially our interior lives, our interior acts, if they're ordered toward ends which are opposed to one another, then we are not going to be at peace. We're going to experience interior turmoil, and distress. But if all of our acts are ordered toward one end, then we will experience interior peace. And therefore peace, peace is the daughter of order. Peace also really is the daughter of charity. Because charity, the theological virtue of charity, that is love of God, orders everything within us to one end, namely toward God, toward loving Him and toward union with Him. And so when we have charity, we're rightly ordered interiorly, then we have interior peace. Now, our exterior actions can contribute towards our interior peace. And so, I don't want you to think of these like they're two totally separate spheres, the exterior and the interior. Um, because the way that we conduct ourselves in the outer world really reveals the way that we are interiorly, whether we like it or not. And so, if we are interiorly virtuous, and we're interiorly living a life of charity, ordered toward union with God, and exteriorly we're going to conduct ourselves that way. 
And insofar as we fail in doing that, it shows that there's aspects of our interior selves that have not fully been uh, integrated by charity, by the virtue of charity. There's parts of ourselves that are still ordered toward different ends. And so there's still opposition, there's still interior disunity, disharmony, and a certain lack of peace. Now, all this to say, on Monday, on Monday I failed to get up uh, at 5 a.m., as is my resolution for the year. Uh, first day of the school year, I slept in two hours. My guardian angel, I think, must have woken me up uh, at seven, just in time for morning prayer. So I woke up, I stared for a moment at the clock in a state of disbelief, and then flew out of bed, I started bouncing all around the room, you know, saying, oh no, 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 trying to get ready, you know. <laughs> I'm sure it was comical, like knocking things over getting myself ready, I managed to get down to prayer just in the nick of time. Not the way I wanted to start the year. And the entire day, I felt like I was playing catch-up, you know? I was I was constantly behind, I was constantly rushing, racing through things. I prayed my office in like little bite-sized increments, rushing through the prayers at top speed whenever I had a little free time throughout the day, just to get it done, just to get it done. And it was like that with everything throughout the day. I, there wasn't enough time for anything. I was trying to squeeze everything in, and and it destroyed my interior peace. By the end of the day, I felt exhausted. I wanted nothing to do with God because I felt, that, you know, on some level, that He had been the one who imposed all these obligations on me, which I spent the whole day trying and uh, largely failing to to complete, to succeed at. So again, at the end of the day, the last thing I want to do is pray. But as I will speak more about uh, shortly, I am following this this method. It's called the PAR method, P-A-R, which stands for prepare, act, and reflect. And it requires me to reflect at the end of the day. Sort of like if you know anything about Ignatian spirituality, Jesuit spirituality, sort of like the practice of the examine at the end of the day. When you look back over all your actions and you ask yourself certain questions, helps prepare for the next day also. So I had to do this reflection and reflecting over the day and just realizing how losing this one this one battle, the first battle of the day in the morning, the battle to get up at, at, at five, the battle of what Saint Jose Maria Escrivá calls the heroic minute, how it had really it had really disturbed my entire day and I don't want to say made it impossible, but we can say, okay, sure, on a subjective level because I was not prepared to receive the Lord's gifts and I remained stuck in that first decision of sleeping in. It made it impossible for me to live out the rest of the day in a state of serenity and with my end focused on union with God. And so for all day, I was trying and failing to just meet obligations, cross things off my to-do list. Also, dealing with the uh, difficulties the day threw at me, like the scheduling conflicts, etc., which I wasn't well prepared to meet. Now, I think it was by the Lord's gift, really, that I had this experience on the first day of the semester, because it, it encouraged me the next day. I knew I really had to get up at five o'clock in the morning and spend my first hour of the day pray in my office and really live according to the plan of life, the schedule that I prepared for myself. And the two days could not have been more different as I said, the first day was so rushed. The first day, from it, from the first moments, lacked peace. I was just 
going about all my business in a state of perpetual hurry. And uh, on the second day, from the first moments of the day, I was at peace. I was serene. And that day had its own challenges, but I was able to meet them without allowing my inner peace to be disturbed, without becoming, well, without disharmony entering into my interior life, you know? And so that's where we should be. That's, that's what the Lord wants from us. He wants us to live in such a way that whatever happens to us exteriorly, interiorly, we remain with Him. We always remain with Him. And so, um, it's entirely possible for us to become, you know, we can become stressed, we can get, we experience the effects of that on our bodies, we can get headaches, whatever else. But we should not lose our peace of soul. If it does, I mean, if we do, it shows that something, something is wrong with us on a spiritual level. Um, it's not something that can't be cured, it's not something, it's not like a brokenness that we, that we inherently have, that the Lord cannot cure us of. But it should inspire us to stop and to reflect and to think, what is it that's caused me to lose my peace? What is the interior disharmony? What are the opposing ends that I am working for right now? Because huh? if we're only working towards love of God, out of love of God and towards union with God, we're going to be at peace. So what else am I working towards on some level interiorly that's causing me to experience this disharmony? Now, I talked about the PAR method, which I'm using, and this comes from a great tool I acquired this year. It's called the Monk Manual. M-O-N-K, Monk Manual, which is just so fun to say. It's a, a kind of a daily planner um, in a certain sense, but it's also more than a planner. A planner is for doing things more efficiently, for organizing your time more productively, optimizing your workflow and so on. But the Monk Manual, it builds itself as a, uh, I believe, a journal for being plus doing. And so it's really built on sound principles of Christian anthropology. I would say, um, the Christian view of who man is. And at the most basic level, we can say man is a human being, not a human doing. You know, man is a human being. The monk manual is supposed to be a way to um, not just optimize your workflow so you can be more productive and get more things done, but to help you be the person that you want to be. And so to live your life reflectively, intentionally, day to day, week to week, and month to month. So each manual covers three months, 90 days. It has monthly pages, weekly pages, and daily pages. And it applies the PAR method. So at the most zoomed out level, you got your monthly page, you're preparing at the beginning of the month or whenever you start to use the manual, it could be any day. But you, you look at the whole month, it gives you a little calendar, so you can you can write in like the most important events of the month. You, that, that, you, 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 you fill in the calendar so you kind of have an image of the month to come. Then the manual asks you to, to do two things. You choose one habit which you're going to build for the whole month. And it's gotta be something concrete you can track. So for me, this month, uh, it's this resolution of waking up at 5 a.m. every day. That's my habit for the month of January. Then you also select for the month a theme. And the theme is gonna become the lens through which you reflect on your activities each day and each week. Now, once you've got your habit and your theme, then you can list out some priorities for the month. I believe each page gives you five priorities. Um, again, again, I'm driving now, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't give you for 
for sure what each page has, but I think the monthly page has five spaces for priorities. And these are the things, when you get to the end of the month, you wanna be able to say, for sure, I accomplished these things. This is what I've done. Um, so for me, one of my priorities for January is to read the whole play, Henry VI, by Shakespeare, which uh, is, you know, I'm following the Shakespeare 2020 schedule to read his complete works throughout this whole year. And so, though that's what's assigned for the next couple weeks. So by the end of January, I want to have finished parts one, two, and three of that, that whole play. Now, from the, from the month view, you can drill down a little bit closer and you go to the week view. The week view, you look at the next seven days ahead of you. Again, it gives you space to write in any appointments that you have or kind of fixed things for the week. On the week view, you're gonna write down three priorities. And these can be drawn directly from your monthly priorities, if some of those are things you wanna really accomplish by the end of the week. Or you can have different discrete priorities just for that week. But things that by the end of the day on Saturday, you wanna say, I have accomplished these things. They must be done by then. Now, from the week view, you get to the daily views. And the daily pages are really where you spend most of your time. On the daily page, you write down again your habit and your theme. You write it down every day. And so it keeps it fresh in your mind. It's reinforcing the habit and it's reinforcing the theme. Then it gives you an hour-by-hour -hour schedule for the day. You'll, you'll write in three priorities for the day. Again, you can import these for the week if there's a certain priority you want to focus on that day. Or it can be just for the day. Things that by the end of the day you want to say for sure that you've done. Then you look at the hour-by-hour -hour schedule. You write in when you're going to wake up, when you're going to go to bed, write in your fixed appointments. So for me, these are things like class times, prayer times, meal times that the seminary provides for me. Then you look at the rest of the day and you, you can see in the day, where are your white spaces? Where's the free space? And you can begin to allocate time for accomplishing your priorities. Now the way the schedule is, you can't allocate anything less than a half an hour. And so it really inspires you to um, yeah, to manage your time well. It shows you how much time you really have. You can't, um, you know, you can't take one hour and expect to get three priorities done. At most, you might be able to assign two. And if you're being realistic, probably one, you know? So you've got to budget your time. And, but you're doing all this the night before. You prepare, this is, this is P of the apartment. This is P, prepare. So the night before, you're preparing for the next day. You're scheduling it all out. It also gives you a to-do list area where you can write down small, one-off items, short things you can accomplish um, whenever you happen to have a little free time, like sending emails if you have to do that, or give someone a call, whatever. You can write those down there. Then, this is really an area where I think the, the good Christian anthropology at the root of the monk manual shines, because in preparing for the next day, it asks you to, to identify ways you can give, at least one way that you can give the next day. And so by this time, you've got your priorities done, you've scheduled out your day, you've got your habit, you've got your theme, and now you've got a, a, a clear, pretty clear mental image of what the next day is gonna bring. Now, you project yourself forward into that and you think, how can I give this day? It's not all about me, it's not just about accomplishing my goals. But as St. John Paul II teaches us, man only finds himself in a true gift of himself. I'm gonna talk about this more, by the way, in the theology section today. This is my topic for, for our, our little theology discussion later on. 
but you have to think, how can I give of myself in the day to come, at least one way. For example, um, one thing I'm trying to do each day this week is to walk at least 30 minutes a day, just go for a little walk. It's, I've made it a priority each day of the week. And so for one of the days when I was trying to think how could I give tomorrow, I thought, well, maybe I could just invite someone who I wouldn't normally maybe have a conversation with, one of the brothers who I don't know so well, to take a walk with me and to join me. I was going to walk after lunch, I think. So to join me for this walk after lunch and we can have a conversation and I'll get to know the guy better and maybe he has something he'd like to talk about. So we think about things like this, ways you can give. Now, step two of par, A, you act. So then the next day comes and you live through the day and you're following your schedule and you're accomplishing your priorities, you're accomplishing your goals. And um, as the day progresses, you know, you, there's always different circumstances will arise. Maybe you have to adjust a little bit here or there, but for the most part, you're just sticking to what you've set out for yourself. You're following your schedule. You're, you've, uh, you're um, accomplishing your habit, you know, make sure you get your habit in there. And the goal of all this is that you're able to live through the day in an intentional way without losing your interior peace. Because as you've done all your preparations, you're keeping your end in mind, you know. You're thinking of, and this, the month manual doesn't, it doesn't put it in these necessarily theological terms. But you're thinking of, as, you, as you're preparing for the next day, who do I want to be? Remember, I'm a human being before I'm a human doing. So, as the person I ideally want to be, how am I going to live out this day? You're making time for what's really important, not just accomplishing all these random items that the world's going to throw at you, but setting time aside, especially at the beginning of the day for me, like the first hour of the day for the office, setting time aside for what's truly most important. Now you're living out your day. You've set, set time aside to do what you really want to do, as well as to get the things done that you must do. So you're living out your day intentionally, peacefully end of the day, now it's time to reflect on that day. And so, on the daily page, it's a two-page spread, on the right side of the daily page, it gives you about half a page to use for your reflection, and it asks you certain questions. It asks you to identify three highlights for the day, and you don't spend a ton of time on this, a, a ton, a ton, you don't spend a ton of time on this, you just kind of uh, answer whatever first comes to your mind, okay? So what were your three highlights from the day? What were three times when you were really at your best that day? When you were really living as the person that you, you want to be, you know, you're, you're, you're living as your best self, as, um, as Matthew Kelly says, that Catholic speaker. When were you at your best? Then it gives you a space to say, um, it says, I felt unrest when dot, dot, dot. And so in this section, you think about what was the moment during the day when I felt unrest, when I felt desolation? Maybe I felt stressed, or I felt lonely, or I lost my peace. What was that moment? What was going on? Gives you a little space to write it down. And then the last question, one thing I can do to improve tomorrow is, and this is really powerful. So maybe from reflecting on your moment when you felt unrest, to be able to think, well, tomorrow when this situation arises, what's something I'm gonna do differently? Or um, if you didn't do your habit that day, that's one real easy way you can improve tomorrow. Do the habit. <laughs> or maybe something you did well. Maybe it's, maybe it's the way that you gave that day. When you're thinking the next day, maybe I can do that again. Or what's a way I can do it better? So we're always trying to improve, not just resting on our laurels.
Now you finish your reflection, now you prepare for the next day. And so it gets you, as you're doing it, I've been doing it for a week now, I can say it gets you into a rhythm, this PAR method. And it's not some esoteric, you know, strange method. I mean, prepare, act, reflect. It's basically, <laughs> when you think about it, it's just the way that we ought to be living anyway. We don't simply act and then act and then just keep acting, acting, acting. No, we prepare ahead of time so that we're, we're able to act um, really as rational beings, as human beings. We're able to act in accord with who we want to be. And then after we've acted, we reflect and we say, did I really act like who I wanted to be? How did I succeed? How did I fail? How can I do better? It's a, a really great way to live out your days, your weeks, your months. And so I recommend the monk manual to you if, like me, you're looking for ways to live a more ordered life, um, ordered toward the ultimate end, which of course is love of God and union with God. Now, I've arrived at the church, so I'm going in for mass, but you will not experience a break in time. Uh, when I come back out, in what for you will be just a few seconds, we are going to talk about today's saint, the saint of the day, Saint Anthony of the Desert. More of that to come in a moment. What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. Now today is the feast day of Saint Anthony of the Desert, also called Saint Anthony the Abbot, or in the Eastern Church, uh, Saint Anthony the Great. Now, Saint Anthony is a very, very interesting saint which is why uh, it's most fitting that I start this new weekly segment of the saint of the day today on his feast day. St. Anthony, sometimes called the father of Western monasticism or of, of monasticism in the church. Of course, there are various saints who uh, compete for that title. St. Benedict is another one. But St. Anthony, when he was a young man, uh, his parents had both died. And they left him very rich, but very lonely. And he was uh, living kind of a worldly life, I believe, enjoying all the pleasures the world had to offer. When one day he happened to walk into a church and he heard the gospel being proclaimed. And the words of the gospel were, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you have, then come follow me. And St. Anthony heard these words as being particularly addressed to him that day by our Lord. So he went sold all that he had, gave the money to the poor. He had one sister and he entrusted her to the care, I believe, of some of an order of nuns. And then he went out into the, into the, out of the world, rather, and into the desert, thus his name, St. Anthony of the Desert, where he lived as a hermit. And so the Golden Legend, which is a, a book from the Middle Ages about the lives of saints, it was the most widely published book of the Middle Ages before the imitation of Christ. So this book, The Golden Legend, it tells us a number of very interesting stories about the life of St. Anthony. Now, um, a side point here, when we're reading works like The Golden Legend, of course, legend is there in the name. Um, we want to be careful how we read them. Legend, in this sense, it's a genre of, of history so we don't want to read these texts as if they're entirely fantastical, as if they're just sort of pious imaginations about the lives of the saints. They really are a genre of history. But as we read them, we want to remember that what we're reading is not a modern biography. 
and the authors were not concerned with living up to kind of editorial standards, you know, that <laughs> we would have to adhere to today if we were going to write about someone. They were writing works of history of um, what's called hagiography, holy writing, writing about the lives of saints. And their purpose was not primarily to give us a, a clear and accurate and precise picture of the saint's life on earth, down to all the details, but to give us rather a true picture of the saint's spiritual life and of their virtues so that we, as readers and listeners, could be inspired to imitate them. So we read the life of St. Anthony. There are a number of elements that stand out to us. And, uh, for example, St. Anthony was well known for having battles with demons when he was out in the desert. And there were times the demons would appear to him and would even enter into physical contests with him. And they'd battle it out with their fists and with, with teeth and their feet. And so there's one story the golden legend relates about St. Anthony uh, went into a cave and he, and he became so beset with demons. They were all surrounding him and attacking him at once. And so St. Anthony uh, fought valiantly, but ultimately the, the demons left him unconscious. And then some other brothers uh, out in the desert came upon his body and they carried him back to his hermitage and nursed him back to health, you know, and when he recovered consciousness, St. Anthony wanted to go right back into the cave, and he challenged all those demons to fight him again, and, uh, you know, and, and, he, and he ended up facing them down, and the demons ran away terrified. They thought, who is this holy man who, when we've inflicted on him such pain and such trials, he rises himself again to the contest without fear. So that's one story. Um, which ought to inspire us to have that kind of boldness in our spiritual life, you know? Sometimes when we uh, face a contest and we fail, our resolution, rather than St. Anthony's of wanting to get right back to it and try again, can be, well, you know, I guess I'm not, uh, not going to try that one again. So we should have that boldness and that desire to, you know, immediately make another attempt and another and another and another until we succeed. But the story that I really wanted to relate about the life of St. Anthony, I read this morning. And um, I think it's very revealing. Because sometimes with a saint like this, uh, the great St. Anthony, the, the, great, the greatest of the Desert Fathers, really, we can read about his life and it can almost be discouraging for us if we're not careful. Because we see that he lived and he achieved such heights of virtue, such holy sanctity, such discipline. He sold everything he had and gave it to the poor. He went and lived in a cave in the desert <laughs> in total solitude, devoting himself to prayer and fasting. And people would come to seek his wisdom. And we read about the lives of these early saints who showed such zeal and who showed such, such a desire and a, and, a, and a will to give themselves utterly over to the teaching of our Lord in the Gospels. Well... By comparison, it can make us feel a little bad about ourselves. <laughs> and in a way, it should, it should make us a little bit uncomfortable. Not despairing, not afraid, but it should make us a little bit uncomfortable and inspire us to go to greater heights ourselves, as I said. Well, this other story I want to relate about St. Anthony ought to give us also a little bit of comfort, I think, and to show us the great value of moderation in the spiritual life. You know, the other day I was talking to a brother by way of introduction. I was talking to a brother at a meal, and uh, 
he was he was encouraging me to go vegan for Lent. And um, this is he 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 lives as a vegan all the time. So he was telling me the way he began was he uh, started to be a vegan one year for Lent when he heard a priest give a sermon saying that what we the the uh, the discipline either is something that we give up or that we take on for Lent we had to continue through the whole year and the next year we'll keep it up and we'll add something new at Lent and then we'll we'll keep it up and the idea is you just keep adding and adding and adding for your entire life and so you keep uh, continually continually growing in your discipline in the spiritual life there's something definitely good about that um, but there's also something in what he was saying that to me it, it, it struck me as something foreign to my own kind of spirituality and there are legitimate schools of spirituality in the church um, my school of spirituality is very much formed by as you will know if you've listened to this podcast for a while by St. Therese by Blessed Columba Marmion it's based on the idea that we're not called to be spiritual athletes you know not that there's necessarily something wrong with uh, with striving to do great things for God like St. Anthony did and like my brother in the seminary God bless him was encouraging me to do but the danger the danger of spiritual athleticism if you will can be that we imagine that the Holy Trinity is sitting up in heaven like a, a panel of judges watching over the spiritual Olympics you know and they're 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 assessing um, the rigorousness of our fasts and how many hours we can spend kneeling and they're giving us marks to, you know, judge who's going to win the gold medal. No way. God is not interested in the greatness of our works primarily. He's interested in our love. He's interested in how greatly we trust Him and how we entrust ourselves to Him in love and how we are able to receive His great mercy. And so really there are no great works there are only small works done with great love and so sure if you want to get if you want to become a vegan for Lent that's great if you're doing it with great love of God so St. Anthony teaches us this lesson in a slightly different way there's a story told of him in the golden legend that a young man was traveling through the desert and we can imagine he's probably a pious you know young man who's going out to try himself this was very common um there were, of course, the Desert Fathers who lived permanently in the desert in this, in this eremitical way of life, giving themselves over to fasting and prayer. But then there would also be kind of uh, travelers, pilgrims, if you will, who would come to the desert to seek the wisdom of these fathers and to, much as today we might go on a spiritual retreat, to go and purify themselves of, of worldly desires, of the concupiscence of the flesh and so on, and recommit themselves to prayer. Well, this is a young man who came into the desert and what he found was St. Anthony and some of the other Desert Fathers were at recreation together. And they were, doesn't, Golden, Golden Legend doesn't say what they were doing, but they were probably having some leisure of some kind, playing a game or something, or singing songs, who knows. And this brother was very disedified to see the holy St. Anthony the Great, you know, playing and, and taking time of leisure. He was scandalized by it, and he told St. Anthony so. So St. Anthony to teach him a lesson, instructed him to take out his bow and, uh, and shoot at a target, maybe a cactus or something, who knows what's out there in the desert. <laughs> and so this young man t- 
takes out his bow, he strings it, and he holds it tight, and he fires off one, and then another, and then another arrow. And, and he hits the target each time. He's a good archer. And so, after he's fired these three arrows, and they all find their mark, then he lets loose the string on his bow. And then he says, whoa, hold on a second. Why did you loosen the string on your bow? And the young man says, well, father, if I was to keep the bow strung all the time, then it would go slack, and it wouldn't be any good anymore when I needed to fire an arrow. And St. Anthony says, just so is the value of recreation in the spiritual life. Okay, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, because again, I'm driving, I don't have the golden legend in front of me. But St. Anthony says, just so is the value of recreation in the spiritual life. If you were to keep yourself highly strong at all times, you would grow slack. But you see, as human beings, we have to kind of follow a rhythm, don't we? We have to have time of recreation and leisure, and we have to have times of great devotion. And our times of leisure are very important to us in the spiritual life. They're important to us as human beings. Again, we're human beings, not human doings. We can't do 100% of the time. We have to have times of rest, times of leisure. Rest for the body and for the mind and for the spirit. So I thought that was a wonderful story from the life of St. Anthony. Um, this wonderful desert father, this saint who teaches us above all that Christ is the one thing necessary. That we can give up everything else that we have in life or have it taken from us. And if we, if we remain united to Christ, we have all that we need and more. He was a saint who lived this radical life. And yet, as we can tell just from this one anecdote, and there are other wonderful ones, if you want to look it up online, The Golden Legend is available on the internet. You can just Google The Golden Legend by Jacobus de Varenia, I believe, or Varen. Um, but you can just look up Golden Legend St. Anthony and you'll find these wonderful stories. We can tell from these stories he was a man of great joy. And he was a man who really understood what it is to live and to live the new life in Christ. He lived it in a radical way. Most of us are not capable probably of living or called to live in this day and age but we can certainly learn from him the value, among other things, the value of making great gifts of ourselves to God and yet of remembering always the value of times of recreation, of times of rest. Now, that's enough about St. Anthony. Let's move on to talk a little bit about Henry VI. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Henry VI. I have just a, a couple of things to say about this play so far. I've just finished part one. It's a, it's a play that's broken up into three parts, which Shakespeare wrote it at different times. And um, from what I've read, this part, part one, was actually written last, and it kind of functions as a prologue uh, to the other two. So I'm about to get started on part two, probably today or tomorrow, but I finished part one. Um, it is a wonderful wonderful play. It's a wonderful story. I don't think it's very well known these days, but it's kind of a shame. Um, it's very well constructed. It is a bit confusing because it's a, it's a historical play. And so you have all these, all the characters have various names and sometimes their names might change if their title changes. So it's a little difficult to keep track of the way that, that they're all related to each other also. Um, the names, the relations, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a, bit of a mess, but that was the historical reality. 
And so it's set right after the death of King Henry V. Um, in fact, the opening scenes of the play are uh, just after they learn of the, the king's death and then by his, his, um, his grave, uh, not, not grave, what do you say, um, his coffin, I guess, um, for the wake. And so King Henry V was known as a great conqueror and he won a lot of victories for England, especially in France. Now England is embroiled in war in France again. And there's this prophecy that was made that all that King Henry V had won, his son would lose. And so his son, his successor, is a child. He's a young boy. And what we see in part one of King Henry VI is the way that the, the country very quickly kind of falls apart without a strong hand on the helm. When there's a child who's king, all these other elements in power are jockeying to get more of it. And so the Bishop of Winchester, who later becomes a cardinal, he's kind of got his own political game that he's playing. and he's, His rivalry is with um, the Duke of Gloucester, who's the king's uncle. And the bishop is also the child king's great uncle. So you see, they're all related. But uh, So Gloucester and Winchester are vying for power. And then they're inspiring factions who are fighting in the streets. And then you've also got um, you've also got the War of the Roses basically starting during this time. So we see one scene between the Duke of York and the Earl of Somerset in a garden, and they are each uh, insulting each other, and <laughs> they they begin. They have a crowd of their kind of um, friends around them, and they begin. One plucks a white rose and puts it on his lapel, and says. If anyone here is on my side, let them not be ashamed to wear a white rose to show it. And then the other one plucks a red rose, and you see how it progresses. Well, this, the tensions here escalate to the point where um, they go before the king, and some of their supporters are called in, and they're asking permission from the king to fight each other to the death, you know, for the honor of their lords who they support, the one belonging to the white rose party, the other to the red rose party. And the king, the child king, trying to cool the tensions, he says, why should it make any difference if I wear a red rose or a white rose on my breast? When, you know, these two men, my advisors, I love them both the same. And, but then he does something very foolish and he, he pins a white rose to his breast. And so, of course, no matter what he says, you know, he's wearing the symbol of one of the factions, so he's just encouraging more factionalism. And so what we see with poor King Henry VI is really um, a, a, a young leader who's had leadership thrust upon him, and he's, he's finding his way, and he's kind of caught flat-footed, and he makes some mistakes. And there's other elements in government who are much more experienced, who are manipulating him, and who are using him to their own advantage. We see it very much at the end of the book, um, when S the Duke of Suffolk, the king, in order to conclude this long war with France, um, they're arranging a marriage between the king and then the daughter of one of the French earls or something. And then uh, this this um, Suffolk, his, or the earl, I think he's the earl of Suffolk, he meets Margaret of Anjou, who's the daughter of another French lord. Uh, in the aftermath of a battle, he meets her and he takes her captive. But he's enchanted with her. He falls in love with her. And so he devises this whole plan where he's going to convince 
for King Henry VI to marry Margaret of Anjou, disrupting this other arranged marriage they've got prepared. And then he is going to seduce her and Suffolk is and, and take her as his lover. And then by having power over the queen, he'll have power over all of England. And so you see how these there's plots upon plots that are coalescing around the boy king, Henry VI. One scene, though, that I found particularly moving that I want to talk about is uh, it takes place in France during the wars. And um, the, the English have a wonderful, wonderful general named Talbot. I don't think he's a general, he's, but he's a, maybe that's not the title anyway, but he's a military commander. He's won lots of victories, and the French are just terrified of him. His name's Talbot. And so um, there comes a time when, with the help of Joan of Arc, whose characterization we'll have to talk about a little bit later. With the help of Joan of Arc, the French have regained uh, several cities from the English. And so King Henry VI learns of this news, and he's, I believe, in Paris at the time, and uh, Talbot is there with him. And he says to Talbot, he says, well, my father always told me, Talbot, that you were the bravest among all men. You're the greatest of England's generals. Would you be willing to go and, uh, you know, basically t- tell off the French? <laughs> it, it's kind of a suicide mission, really. But you see, would you you'd be willing to go, you know, and, and go to this city and give the French what for? And Talbot says, why, not only would I be willing, but if your majesty had not commanded me to do it, I would be begging you leave to do it. Because he's an honorable man and he's brave and he's hot-tempered and he wants to go and take the fight to the French. So he goes. Unfortunately, all these other lords, military commanders of England, they're all fighting amongst themselves, and they're using it this rather than sending reinforcements to support poor Talbot, they're using it as an opportunity to jockey for political advantage and each make the other one look bad. And so we get this tragic scene where Talbot is there, he's at the walls of this French city, and he's speaking, shouting over the wall to the to the, the French, you know, and telling them he's been sent by Henry VI to give him a show of force and he's making an ultimatum like let me into the city now and discuss terms or we'll burn down your towers because he's got a force with him but it's not terribly large well it turns out the French were prepared for him to come and they've got him surrounded there's forces on either side of him in the hills there's another force marching up the road behind him and there will be no escape and unfortunately there's no reinforcements coming from these English lords who are fighting amongst themselves now Talbot's stuck, really, in an untenable position. There's no way out. There's, the French aren't going to let him into the city. They've got the upper hand. They've got the high ground. And then we learn that Talbot has sent for his son, a young soldier, never proven yet in battle, John Talbot, bears his father's name. He's sent for his son to ride there to meet him, thinking that this would be a great opportunity for his son to share in his father's victory, a first battle. And uh, so the son arrives... And Talbot, the senior, the general, is bewailing the situation. He, and he tells his young son, there was a mistake to bring you here. This is a trap. You need to fly now while you have a chance. You need to run and save your life. My life is forfeit. Um, and so what we see, these moving couple of scenes, in, I think in Act 4, Talbot, the father, is urging his son to flee from the coming battle. Talbot the younger, 
John Talbot, says to his father, no, there's no way that I can flee. This is my first battle. If I fly now, I'll never enter into the contest again. You know, once, once you run away, um, you'll never come back. And anyway, everyone will think I'm a coward. They'll say I wasn't worthy to be called your son. You who've proven yourself in so many great battles and me run away at the first one, no way. So he, then he tells the father, why don't you flee? <laughs> if, if you run from here, no one will dare say that you're a coward. They, you've been proven by so, so many battles. They'll say that you ran away so you can make a better fight of it another day. And I can stay here and fight. And I can manfully prove myself here. And then, of course, Talbot Sr. says, how can I leave? I can't leave my men here. Then Talbot the Younger says, why don't we both run away? We can both go together. But either way, Father, whatever you decide, if you stay or if you go, I'll be by your side. I'll remain with you. And so Talbot the Senior is moved by this. And he says, well, very well, my son. I can see you're not going to be budged. So remain here with me if you will. So then the battle begins. And the son is incredibly brave. And uh, he's just going after the French. And he even encounters Joan of Arc at one time. <laughs> he he has some great line for it, something like um, the 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 uh, what is it the the virgin son of Talbot was not born to die in contest with a wanton maid like yourself, <laughs> something like that. Because of course they're they're very hard on poor Joan of Arc because she was such a hero of the French, you know, like public enemy number one for England. Anyway, so. Talbot the Younger is proving himself so well in this battle, he's fighting so valiantly, but ultimately he falls because there was really no way for the English to win this unless reinforcements arrived and they don't arrive in time. So Talbot the Younger falls valiantly in battle. And uh, then we have this scene, the English are all slain, Talbot the Senior is grievously wounded, but he comes upon the body of his dead son. And he has this soliloquy where he's speaking to him. And he, he says, death triumphant, but oh, young Talbot, if death had been a Frenchman, you'd have killed him too. <laughs> and he, you, can see, you can see in him such pride at what his son has achieved, even outweighing his grief, outweighing his grief at the loss of his son. He's proud of his son's valor and of his son's integrity and his honor. And then Talbot himself succumbs to his wounds, holding his young son in his arms. And so, obviously, this scene is a tragedy. The whole play is a tragedy. This scene is especially tragic. Um, it shows, among other things, the, the vanity of putting politics and self-interest above you know, helping out another. These lords should have sent the reinforcements for the good of England and for the good of their friend and comrade Talbot. And this disaster could have been averted, as even the French themselves admit. If England had sent reinforcements, this day would have gone very hard for us, they say, as they're gloating after the battle. So this scene is tragic, of course. And we can look at it and we can say, having seen the conversation between Talbot and his son before the battle, well, what was the point, really? One or both of them could have gotten away alive. And we can kind of understand Talbot the senior's position and he's not going to abandon his men there. But what about Talbot the Younger? I mean, 
he, his point is he doesn't want to flee in part because he thinks people are going to call him a coward if he runs away from the battle. They'll say he wasn't worthy of being called his father's son, and they'll mock him. And they'll think, yeah, but you would have gotten away alive, though. I mean, isn't your life worth more than your reputation? Well, of course, this was a very different culture, and it was an honor culture. But what I see in this is I see the son who's not willing to abandon his father. And I see in this, I see in this a certain echo of course, when we talk about fathers and sons, you know, our minds go immediately to the Holy Trinity. I see in this a kind of an echo of the Son, the beloved Son of the Father who was sent into the world with full knowledge that His mission was going to involve suffering to the point of death for the salvation of humankind. And who goes into the world saying, as, as a, the great, a great poem by St. John of the Cross has it, um, it doesn't translate well into English. It's more poetic in the Spanish. But Father, your, my will is your will for me. My will is your will for me. And my delight is to do what you will for me. So the Son goes into the world knowing that it's... It's not... We can't call it a futile mission because it's, He wins His greatest victory by offering Himself up to death. But knowing that it is a mission that's going to end in death and it's going to bring immense, immense suffering for Him. But He goes into the world to run His course with joy. And we see it in the chapter 17 of John's Gospel where Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son. Glorify me as I have glorified you. Where do we see Jesus glorified? When He's raised up on the cross. When, he's, when His arms are spread, when He's nailed to the wood of the cross, giving out His blood, and ultimately gives up His Spirit. When everything is spent, when everything is given over, that's the glory of the Son. And Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son. Father, let your will be done. Let's, let's, let's conclude it. Let's bring it to its consummation. Let's do it. Let's finish the work you sent me into the world to do. Father, glorify your Son. And so I saw a kind of a distant echo of that in this scene where Talbot, the senior, is holding the body of his son and he's so proud of him. Yes, his heart is grieving. And we have to imagine that the heart, the heart of the father must have grieved over seeing the suffering of his son. And yet, far outweighing that grief, the father's, I think we can speak of the father's pride in his son. The, the delight of the heart of the father at the obedience of his son. And the son who endured to the end, who stayed fast, who stayed firm, who kept his eyes fixed, as it were, on the, on the mission, on the end, all the way to his dying breath, who would not yield. Of course, when we when we look at the life of Jesus, there's always a kind, of, there's a kind of a paradox, you know. He won everything by giving everything up. He won the ultimate victory over sin, over Satan, over death, by yielding himself up to death. And so the death of Jesus is a far greater thing than the death of young John Talbot. But we do see a kind of an echo of it there, I think. In the, in the steadfastness of the Son and in the pride of the Father. And so I was very moved by that scene. Um, and of course, you know, if you listen to last week's podcast, you'll know I'm coming off of this silent retreat the week before last about spiritual fatherhood. So I'm kind of reading everything through the lens of fathers and sons right now. Um, it's a major theme in my spiritual life and in my reading. So I was very moved by that scene. And um, it should be an inspiration 
to us just as the life of St. Anthony is an inspiration to us. To Not to contradict what I said earlier, uh, we're, not, we're not striving to be spiritual athletes, I hope, in the sense of just striving to, you know, win marks from God or impress God. We can't impress heaven. But like St. Anthony and like these two Talbots, to be faithful to God to our dying breath. That should be our great hope. That should be our motivation. That is a truly great thing. It's not great in worldly terms. You know, the life of Jesus, his life ends in, in, um, in an ignominious way. Nobody at that time, even his own disciples, you know, they, as they're on the road to Emmaus, they're saying, we thought he was the Messiah, but look how his life ended. They were in despair. No one before the resurrection of Jesus would have thought, that his death was some kind of triumph. They thought it was the end of his life. And we see the French gloating over their defeat of, of Talbot and of his son. They talk about hacking their bodies to pieces, you know. I mean, this is not victory in worldly terms. But in the light of the cross, we know what victory truly looks like for us who are followers of Christ. It's going to look like the cross. But we have to remain faithful. We have to remain faithful to our dying breath. That's victory. That is something truly great. Now, this is a natural segue into the topic I want to talk about, I think, in the realm of theology. So let's move on into that. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur this week in our theology segment, I want to talk about beginnings and the importance of going back to the roots, to the source. We were talking just now about the importance of remaining faithful to the end. But now let's turn our eyes back to the beginning. In the Magisterium of St. John Paul II, um, as he was developing his theology of the body, he said his project was to arrive at an adequate anthropology, an adequate idea of who man is, on which to build up and support the whole tradition of Christian sexual morality. So he said we have to arrive at, a, at, an, at an adequate anthropology in order to be able to hold and to teach what the church teaches about sexual morality. We have to really understand who man is, if it's going to make any sense to us, you know. And so a lot of the theology of the body is is focused on building this foundation of who man is. Well, in order to do that, St. John Paul II goes back to the beginning of the scriptures, to Genesis, which tells a story of the, the beginning of man, of the creation of human beings, our first parents, Adam and Eve, by God. And St. John Paul II, he delineates kind of three uh, stages of human history, if you will. So the, the stage that we're in from the time of the fall all the way up till the end of creation is what's known as historical man. And so um, historical should not be taken in the sense like it's history that's over and done with, but history that's still unfolding. Historical man. That's where we are now. But to understand historical man, he wants to go back to what he calls original man, man before the fall. Adam and Eve in the, you know, about maybe 15 minutes, we don't know how long, but let's just say 50 minutes that they existed in the Garden of Eden before they were tempted by the serpent and fell into the original sin. Original man is 
can be understood as humanity as God intended us to be from the beginning, as God really wanted us to be when he, he first created us and created the world. And that will help us to understand now as historical man, suffering the effects of original sin, um, how we are to be. We, because of original sin, are not capable of living as original man did. But there is a third phase, which is St. John Paul II refers to as eschatological man. Eschatological, the word eschaton, refers to the end of time, the end of all things, um, when God will create a new heaven and a new earth. But as Christians, we're kind of living between historical man and eschatological man because we're redeemed by Christ. We're living a life of grace, not just the life of the flesh, the life of original sin, but we really are redeemed. And so we still have the, kind of the, the, the tendencies of our fallen nature leading us into sin, but we also have a second nature, grace, uh, a, a, if you will, um, a spiritual nature, which builds on our human nature, but directs us to something more and makes us really capable of living something more than the life of the flesh. But before we get into all that, it's best to really look back and look back in a contemplative way on original man, the story told us in Genesis. We know this story so well, don't we? On the first day in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good, 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 and He created man and woman, and it was very good. Well, Leave aside woman for a minute, because first he created man. He created Adam. He created Adam. In his own image and likeness, he created him. So the image of God, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? St. John Paul II devotes a lot of time to this. But basically, we can understand the image of God in two major ways. For one thing, human beings are rational. We are creatures of reason. And so, we're unlike every other animal in creation. We are endowed with intellect and with a free will. And so, when God said it's not good for Adam to be alone, he wanted to present him with a, a worthy companion, he starts to present to him the animals. And he gives him a dog, you know? And Adam, said, Adam is naming all the creatures in creation. So, God presents one, Adam names it. But... They're, none of them are really are fit for him. The dog won't work, the cat won't work, the fish won't work, the iguana won't work. We'll go through all the animals in creation. God is, is really, he's teaching Adam who he is through this, I think. You know, he, he's presenting him all, all of creation, which is under his dominion. But none of it will really suffice as his, his equal, as a companion, a true companion. Because none of them are rational. None of them have the rational nature that he does. The capacity to, to know things, to give them names, as we see, and to, and to freely will and to freely love. The greatest, the greatest act of the will is to love. The greatest act of the intellect is to know. Human beings alone are capable of those acts, knowing and loving, in the truest sense of the word. And so, Adam's learning who he is. He's learning nothing in creation is his equal. Then what does God do? He makes woman. He makes another who is Adam's equal. And this, some foolish people in our age talk about how Christianity is anti-woman. I say, look back at Genesis. Woman 
is man's equal. Out of all creation, woman is the only creature who is the equal of man. God brings her out of the man's side to be, Genesis says to be his helper, but we should not understand this like um, she's just made to kind of I don't, assist him, <laughs> to just kind of, I don't know, uh, help him take care of the garden. She's man's helper in that she reveals, she reveals to man who he truly is. When, he, when Adam wakes from his sleep and he fixes his eyes on Eve, he says, that she is truly bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. When he, when he sees Eve, he knows who he is. He knows what it is to be a human being when he looks upon her. And in that, in that instant, when he sees, he sees Eve and he recognizes in her a creature like himself, with an intellect and with a free will, the same nature as he has, who's capable of knowing him and of truly being known more than the animals. I mean, he can know the animals and you know exhaustively, but he can never know Eve exhaustively. She's a mystery, like he is. There's a depth to her which cannot be, which cannot be exhausted. And then not only that, he's capable of of loving her and of truly receiving from her an equal response, a reciprocal response of love which is more than the animals can give, that's for sure. And so he looks on her, he knows who he truly is, and, and he sees in her not only an, kind of a, an, an analog to himself. See, Eve is not just another man. She's woman. She's complementary. He sees in her a reciprocal complementarity, that they are made for each other. Adam for Eve. Eve for Adam. They're made to give themselves to one another in a communion a relationship of love. And so this is written into our human being from the very beginning. John Paul II calls it the law of the gift, that man is made to give of himself, and woman is made to give of herself. And this is written into our being, our human being. That's why I believe I quoted this earlier in the podcast. St. John Paul II says, human beings can only find themselves, truly come to know themselves, by making a true gift of themselves. And that's why the monk manual, every single day, as you're preparing for the next day, it has you ask, how can I give in the next day? What's one way I can give? So I think that's a suitable place to end the podcast. I have a lot more I can say about this, and I probably will in coming weeks. But I'll leave you there with that image um, of Adam and Eve created, created to give of themselves to one another. Now, we're human beings living after the fall. Our capacity to give of ourselves is wounded, and our capacity to receive is wounded as well. And because we live in a fallen world, we're all the more broken by our own past experiences, especially experiences in childhood, which make it difficult for us sometimes to give of ourselves fully in the way that God made us to do. Nevertheless, this is a law written into our very hearts, written into the core of our being, that we can only find ourselves in self-gift. And it's our deepest delight and our deepest satisfaction to be able to give ourselves fully and then to receive a reciprocal self-gift of another. Now, the, the, the deepest level of this is true is on the level of rationality, not only on the level of complementarity. So, for example, for us as celibates, although we are um, giving up the, the good, the real good of marriage, it's so good. John Paul II calls it the primordial sacrament. Because from the very moment that Eve existed and she and Adam saw each other, they were married. See, so marriage existed from the garden. Marriage, it's that good. God willed it from the beginning. 
We as celibates, as priests, we give up the good of marriage. We do not, however, give up the good of self-gift or of receiving the self-gift of another. This, this, um, you know, this, this law of the gift, it's actualized in us, in our ministry, in good friendships, in our families. And it's truly satisfying. But for many people who are called to marriage, um, marriage is, is the highest expression we have of this in our human life. And um, Christian marriage, we can see in it, we can see it as a, a true icon of the love of God. Because remember, this law of the gift is written into our being because God made us in his own image and likeness. God in creating everything, he gave up himself. He gave up himself. God's creation is an act of love. Everything he created, he said that it was good. And why? Because he loved it. I mean, what do you do with a good thing? You love it. For us human beings, we see something good, then we love it. But for God, it's different. God loves and therefore things are good. So God, in a sense, loved creation into being. He loved Adam and Eve into being. He truly gave of himself in creating all these things. And in making human beings in his own image and likeness, he wrote that law of the gift, which is his own law of love, into our hearts. That we would find our satisfaction in imitating him, in giving of ourselves to one another, and receiving a reciprocal self-gift. And that self-gift on the human plane, our ultimate fulfillment, the, the, the ultimate end of that law of the gift, is to give ourselves fully over back to Him, to our Creator, the One who created us, and to receive His reciprocal self-gift in turn. That, that's the beauty of the spiritual life. That's the beauty of the life of grace. To be able to make a gift of ourselves, which is our deepest delight as human beings, to God to God, the one who created us, and to know that it truly delights his heart, his fatherly heart, when we entrust ourselves to him like that, and that he too wants to make a gift of himself to us in return. And my friends, that's what heaven is going to be, making a perfect self-gift to God and receiving his perfect self-gift for all eternity. That is perfect delight. That is perfect joy. That is beatitude. And that is bliss. And my friends, that's what we're made for. We're made to taste it on earth, to truly live it on earth, but even more to live it for all eternity with our Father and with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. So I wish you a very blessed week to come and um, I look forward to speaking to you more next Friday. May the Lord bless you. May He protect you from all evil. May He bring you to everlasting life. Amen.